Hello and welcome to Where's the Exit? I'm your host, Steve Blake, and today I'm joined by Georgina Wilkins. Welcome to the show, Georgina. Thank you very much, Steve. Excellent, excellent. Um, now, uh, we've been connected on LinkedIn for a while, and I see a lot of your posts on there, and actually it was a, a post that you did about a presentation that you gave that sort of piqued my interest uh, to try and get you on the show. Luckily, I've managed to, to do that. But you're head of IP at Hitachi Energy, correct? Head of IP strategy. I, so right, okay, okay. There is also a head of IP who is my uh, right. brilliant boss. But yeah, he- head of IP strategy. So in my view, I do all the super interesting things. Yeah, perfect. I think you're probably right. So um, so we've got that as a title, but I think to give a bit more uh, context to that, I wonder if you could, for people that don't know you um, already and are listening to the show, just give a bit of sort of background about how you arrived at the role that you're in and what that role sort of entails and what you're doing sort of day to day yeah of course I can and um, first of all I've got to just give a quick shout out to my daughter Tilly um, <laughs> because she made a special request so hi Tilly that's that's pretty yeah. hi Tilly I can't imagine that many of Tilly's friends will actually be regular listeners but I, but I hope she gets some kudos for this in, so, in some way it'll be on Apple podcasts I guess so that's that's uh I, th- I think that might be some kudos but <laughs> brilliant absolutely um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so how did I get into this role? Um, yeah. It was a slightly winding journey. Um, mm. I started out as a, a researcher, so I did a PhD in physics and then did a couple of postdocs, um, may- mainly in different parts of the world because I, I like traveling. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed uh, being in innovation and science. Yeah. And when I moved back to the UK, I started as a lecturer in physics, um, but it was more of a teaching role. And I really wanted to find a role that would get me back to sort of being at the forefront of science. um, And being a patent attorney is that it's a cross between technology and law, as you know. Um, And you're the first person to know about uh, the invention because, you know, to get a patent, you cannot disclose it to others. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I hadn't thought of it like that before, but yeah, that's quite a privileged position to be in, isn't it? Absolutely. Hmm. Um, but as you also know, like training to be a patent attorney is really tough. So it was a long journey. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it but it ended in success. So uh, I trained um, I trained in a law firm, which mm-hmm. meant that um, I got to work with lots of different clients, from startups right. to to large companies. Um, had a couple of experiences where I was managing um, a portfolio for a joint venture between Rolls-Royce and LG fuel cells. Um, so right. that gave me an insight into sort of how to manage a portfolio, yep. how to grow a portfolio in line with the business needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, from my perspective, that was the aspect that I really enjoyed. Yeah. I wanted to understand um how IP makes an impact on the business and yeah. how it can support the business reach its goals. And, and that really sort of drove me to look for industry positions. Yeah. So um, after uh, law, the law firm, I, um, I worked at um, a FTSE 250 company okay. who um, had essentially built their entire um, company out of a single patent. Wow. It was a, a management buyout in the 90s uh, from ICI, um, and it was based on a single patent um, covering the process and product of polyether ether ketone, 
which is a super right. plastic. Okay, yeah. What's a super plastic out of interest? I've never heard but, of well, that. Well, it's like the best plastic <laughs> in the world if you think it. It sounds plastics. like it. So it's um, living up to its name, yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of material that is fairly indestructible. So okay. so you can use it in um, to create a spine cage. You can use it for um, a knee replacement. And because it has a different specific heat capacity to metal, yep. it's actually a lot more comfortable from a okay. patient perspective. Right. Okay. But you can use it in all sorts of things. There's a lot of um, material used in fuselages for aircraft, right. so it makes okay. your aircraft uh, far lighter. Yep, sure. But yeah, super material, but also meant I could be incredibly knowledgeable about that tiny area. Yeah. Which meant that, you know, when you were sort of defending uh at the patent office for patent oppositions you just knew everything you knew all of the prior art sure. you knew exactly what your patent had in it and you, yeah. you were in a really sort of strong position in that respect yeah having just come out we talked about this just before we got um we started recording but uh, having just come out of an opposition i can understand what an advantage that would be yeah because there's a lot of prep work goes in uh before that and i guess if you're already holding all of that knowledge then it's um and you also know crucially because you what you're talking about with the commercial aspects is uh i mean i can see why that's of interest to you because it's of interest to me as well but it's so crucial as well and and even in the opposition a lot of the conversation that we had with the client was around right what's the commercially useful outcomes for yeah. you in this you know obviously we, we want to win outright we did by yeah. the way um <laughs> <laughs> great job but uh, but um you if there are fallback positions which ones would be commercially useful yeah. and so having that knowledge of the of the business too must be a big advantage yeah and i i certainly i mean you're probably in a slightly different position but i sort of felt in a law firm that i never got close enough to a business to really get that I agree. commercial knowledge yeah yeah you know it's... one it's competitive and they don't want to share it yeah um but you, you just never got close enough and and that's what i really sort yeah. of find um uh rewarding from yeah. from working in industry it's also something that um i mean we're, we're sort of ten a bit tangential now but that's kind of a theme for this, this <laughs> show anyway but but it's also something that i think the profession doesn't pay enough attention to during training i mean you mentioned training mm. and how hard it is and it's not like trainees don't have a huge amount on their plate already just in trying to pass the exams required to practice but I, I do feel like there's a there's not enough emphasis given on okay how does this actually how is this applied and therefore it doesn't form part of what um, many attorneys do during their practice not all that's that's not not fair to say that but it's not enough of a a feature I don't think of the training yeah I mean I, I looking at SEPA's sort of new training plans I think it's potentially something they're looking at trying to Good. implement yeah. Um, but also I'm part of um, an in-house IP council forum in the UK mm -hmm. and there are lots of in-house patent attorneys and just connecting those those dots with other in-house patent attorneys. We're yeah. almost like the hidden side of the profession, um, yeah. Yeah. but it's been great to sort of change ideas with them. There's but a great organiser. So you're, yeah, I, you, you can come back. I'll just one one more topic on the on the on the tan, on the tangent. But um, there's I came across as part of a, a pitching process recently um, something called the O-shaped lawyer. Okay. Uh, so you should check that out because I think that was kind of it's it's obviously more around sort of legal advice from 
the more traditional legal profession. And it doesn't sort of specifically talk about IP, but I think a lot of the things in there you would find useful and they might be good people for you to reach out to actually. Okay. Anyway, we can now come back. We can come back now. <laughs> well, I was, I was just going to add sort of, you know, a key piece of experience in, in the last place I worked was having the opportunity to work with a disruptive startup. Yeah. So, so I mentioned the, the material that we, we, we made mm-hmm. was good for spine cages, but these yeah. were 3D printed spine cages okay. um, having um, particular strength in all direction, which is right. quite tricky to achieve in a layer by layer printing process. But the startup were, were a great company. They had their own IP um, before we invested in them. But throughout that process, as a uh, as the sort of larger company offering the investment in the target, yeah. we did, did quite a substantial amount of due diligence on yeah. their portfolio. You know, we were a company that had cash flow, so automatically, yeah. as you acquire or you invest in that startup, yeah. the risk around the startup and any sort of third party IP infringements changes massively. Yeah, of course. So that's that's why we were. Um, spending such a long time doing the the due diligence and that's, but it also sorry go on yeah, it also yeah. meant that that we can look at you know we we've got a hand in growing that portfolio and we can um devise the best ip strategy to yeah. support the business objectives yeah and and it's that and we saw it's a lovely segue actually because that that's what i think i'd like to talk to you about today and and you know you, you know this already but to try and get that sort of um, IP perspective, IP due diligence perspective from an acquirer of the types of people that I come across all, all of the time, tech entrepreneurs, who, well, rightly or wrongly, um, most of them, their goal is to have some kind of exit from the business. Often that will include a trade sale to you know businesses like the one that you're working with um, now or the ones that you've worked with previously. And I guess for for the listeners, for those people, it's really, really important to understand what it is you are looking for from an IP portfolio and a company's attitude towards IP that gives you confidence and makes you feel comfortable parting with the cash that you, that you were talking about, um, I guess. And helpfully beforehand, you sort of come up with three topics. And I think um, on this in this episode, we just work through those through those top topics because I think they look absolutely great um, to me. I mean, should we first of all just give a high level of what each one is and and then dive in, or do you just want to dive straight in? Well, um, so, so let's think about like the whole process. So I mentioned mm-hmm. due diligence, um, and let's think about what that actually means. Yeah, from our perspective, we are trying to make a decision as to whether to invest in a particular target and invest or buy or or Mm -hmm. do whatever the business thinks is the right thing to do. And success in that situation is making a good decision there. So all through that process, that due diligence process, we are trying to understand what the risks and opportunities are. So we're looking to evaluate what the growth opportunities are Mm -hmm. We're yep. looking to identify those risks and what the possible mitigations are. Yep. We're, we're trying to understand and validate the business yeah. plan that's on the table. Yeah. So 
we're not just sort of checking whether that business plan is you know accurate I mean when you're selling something you you often oversell at yeah, least a little course, bit so, course, so we're trying yeah. trying to validate that as much as we can yeah. mm-hmm. but we're also trying to understand the implications and um, for integrating that yeah. startup after the uh, uh, you know after the deal's done so to speak yeah I mean, that's really interesting. what you were saying there, that sort of making a good decision. And I guess whether or not it ends up being, you know, with hindsight, a good decision, I, I guess that de- does that depend quite a lot on, on each particular deal and what the business that's acquiring might be looking for? Maybe it's success in terms of increased revenue. Maybe it's sort of, I don't know, increased technical capability. What are the different sort of how much does that change, I guess, rather than asking you just to list the different things? Is it something that varies quite a lot or is it fairly standard? So it's got to, you know, it comes back to IP strategy and aligning your IP strategy to what the business wants to achieve. Mm-hmm. It comes ultimately back to what the, the business wanted to achieve with the uh, the investment. Yep. So if that's a broader technology roadmap, if that is market access, if that is yep. sales or perhaps it's technical know-how, you know, it it could even be um, a purchase of an IP portfolio that mitigates a risk for us. Of course, yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. It's so broad and so fact-specific. I mean, in my view, success could be saying no to the investment. Yes, yeah, quite right. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, so absolutely defining what success is to the business that is really um that's the key sort of driver uh, in how we manage and plan the due diligence process and this is sort of like higher level just at the minute and it might not even relate all of it to to ip quite a bit of it i suspect doesn't but coming at it from the uh from the startup or the the entrepreneur's end what kind of things can they do to get a handle on what would be success for the for you when they're talking to you what what's a good way for them to try to understand that themselves so that they can sort of I think it just makes good sense for everybody to understand that I don't know how they whether or not they can get a a grip on that yeah that's that's a great question that all comes down to understanding what your buyer wants yeah yeah, and understanding what you want so so being able to communicate effectively yeah I, I think um I think from from our perspective, we might not disclose why exactly we sure. would want to invest yeah. in a company because that might change the, the value of the investment. Or, yeah. Yeah. But certainly, um, certainly, I think a starting point for a startup is to understand what they want. So, yeah. so are they looking for investment and funding or are they looking for a, a, an exit? And, you know, again, coming back to IP strategy, I'm sorry, I'm beating the same drum. <laughs> you know, when it comes to IP, uh, start with the end in mind Absolutely. so if you are looking for an exit strategy then yep. you build your portfolio so that it is as valuable as it can possibly be at that yep. exit point that's I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that it's like music to my ears that start with the end in mind is something I, I say all of the time <laughs> and it's so important so let's imagine that the end in mind is an uh, is an exit by acquisition Let's imagine that's the that's the point, and you are approaching this now as the business who might be interested in doing the acquiring. What 
types of things do you want to see? What types of things do you want to know about about this business and its IP specifically? Yeah, so so I would expect that you've put together a nice patch package which um, sort of defines your business strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, it may also cover your sort of product or technology portfolio strategy, so your yep. roadmap. Um, typically, IP would sit somewhere between R and D technology yep. or legal. Um, so mm-hmm. sometimes it sort of has a foot in each court. And there are different reasons for that, which I'll go into. Um, But I think on the IP side, I would be looking for um, the target to have excellent knowledge of their own IP. Yeah. So often what we'll see is, um, you know, a great pack which goes through all the business strategy, the, you know, the uh, financial progression, which takes them exponentially and never ends. Yeah. but it'll also usually have something about IP. So, so yep. they might have some trademarks, they might have patents, um, they might say that they have know-how or trade secrets. Yep. What I would be looking to see is whether they understand exactly what they have. Yep. So if, they're, um, you know, if they've got trademarks, you know, I would be checking the trademark registries and making sure that everything is registered properly, that yep. fees have been paid, et cetera. Yep. From a patent perspective, I would be looking at their claims, whether they're granted, whether they're pending. Um, and just, just a note on that, um, if you're looking to sort of build something for exit, then I would keep your patent portfolio pending as long as possible. So, yeah, okay. so I would be, you know, it's very important to have at least one grant in a patent family. Yeah. But you're looking to sell the IP um, down the line, you want the buyer to have the opportunity to tweak yeah. those claims and, and that portfolio for yeah. their benefit in the future. Yeah, I think what I've seen done in the past is to sort of, I mean, you're getting a bit techie and a bit sort of patent um, filing strategy um, on this, but to keep the UK when they go, when they file a PCT, push that one through to grant and then keep mm-hmm. the PCT pending. So it's mm-hmm. got. So you're kind of you're demonstrating grantable yeah. um, technology, you know, in terms of patent grantable technology. But at the same time, you're still keeping all the options open for the for the buyer. I've seen that that happen a few times. Um, yeah. So a lot of what you're talking about there is kind of like, I mean, it, it's 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 in no way trying to to demean its value to call it formality stuff, but it's sort of like making sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. There's a there's a, a significant amount of that in what you're talking about, right? Yeah, but also, um, you know, do your cl- do your patent claims cover the product that you're yes. looking to grow? Um, <laughs> and this is a thing with startups that I see quite a lot because startups. I mean, I know because you know my own business was just, was a startup not not that long ago, and your focus changes quite a lot. Startups move around. Dynamism is there is that's their superpower, right? So so they use that. And you, what you filed on day one might not no longer be relevant, you know, on day 150. Um, yeah. So keeping on top of that and not just thinking, oh, file the patent, tick the box. Let's just ignore that now. But actually sort of making sure that as your product and your direction sort of meanders, that your mm-hmm. IP portfolio follows that and is still relevant. I think that's really important. Yeah, so absolutely. Does your patent portfolio or your IP portfolio 
align with where the business value is that you're yep. looking to to sell. Yep. Um, and uh, and there's no sort of pulling the wool over people's eyes here <laughs> no. because it's all published. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And and I think you know when you get to the point where the IP team of a corporate is doing the due diligence, um, you know they can see everything before they come to the first meeting mm-hmm. with the M and A team. So very quickly they can understand exactly what the the portfolio scope is and where the value is from from their perspective and how big a risk and how much do you feed in sort of as a risk if you see a a, um a target i think you've used that phrase but a company that you're kind of looking to acquire that has nothing they have technology business and they've not filed any patents is that a big alarm bell for you or is it kind of like okay that's what it is let's move on and see if it's still a a worthwhile exercise so that's a really great question and again it comes back to what's the business looking to achieve here you know if they are looking to broaden their market and the the startup has um you know a huge customer base or install base in that market then the ip may not be as critical but what is critical is that it's identified as a risk and mitigations yeah. are put in place. So, so is there know-how and trade secrets that can be rapidly converted into an IP portfolio? Yeah. You know, more, more critically, is there an FTO, uh, sorry, a freedom to operate risk yeah. that that we need to be aware of and we need to make an assessment of? Yeah. So the whole process is just, you know, if this business changed hands into to our hands, what are the headaches that we're going to have sure. on day one? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And and I guess, you know, uh, along with increased risk comes decreased valuation. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's sort of if the risk goes up, then the value of what you're buying comes down. It, that has to be the case. Right. Yeah, for sure. And um, and also, you know, there's there's something about sort of confidence in what you're buying. Sure. If if you say your patent that your your product is covered by patent protection, but then you go to the nitty gritty and realise that the claims don't actually cover the product any any longer, you've lost confidence in your knowledge yeah. of what you're selling. A credibility issue that bleeds through. Um, yeah. Yeah. To other areas, I, I agree. Now, as as well as this, so I, I wrote down here as you were talking um, originally about sort of knowing what IP they have and. And them understanding that. Um, what about an approach to IP? Is that something that's kind of you you look for and you sort of, you know, if somebody can credibly and clearly put across, this is how we deal with IP within our organisation, is that valuable? So so it is, as long as they walk the talk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Quite. You know, um, I, I think it's sort of, you know, you spent time to build your your patent portfolio, your trade secret portfolio. Yeah. The next thing for me is, um, you know, have they got a respect for that IP portfolio? Yeah. You know, that's a bit that I can't make an assessment on by looking at patent registers. That's the bit where I really need to understand who the key people are in the business and have a conversation with them. It's the bit where we have to look at all of their existing contracts with customers, uh, with yeah. suppliers, with research contributors, 
is where we have to look at employment contracts. And there we're really trying to understand, you know, from an operating standpoint, does the IP that's part of this package have the respect that it requires? Yeah. Um, you know, have you inadvertently given your foreground IP away to the customer? Yeah. Have you done that? And then are you using that same foreground IP that you've just given to somebody else to the next customer? Yeah. Um, yeah. And even presenting it to you as something that they own <laughs> um, and that you should buy. Yes, yeah, quite. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we laugh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult and it's a complicated area for, for SMEs to understand. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I guess on, on this point in particular, is this is where I see quite a challenge for, for startups and um, tech entrepreneurs, because when I talk to them about all of these issues that we're talking about, and, and thankfully, a lot of what you're saying is what I say uh, to, to clients, well, I'm pleased about that. Um, but it's kind of, they, 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 they nod and they, and they totally get it. And they're sort of like, yes, we're on board with that. But then actually, when you put it into the mix with all of the other things that um, a tech startup is trying to manage and deal with, um, you know, and they've got things coming at them from all sides, inevitably, IP can feel like tomorrow's problem. Right. And tomorrow's problem comes down the list until it's no longer tomorrow's problem, it's today's problem. And then it comes up the list. But by that time, a lot of you can't do this overnight, last minute, can you? You can't sort of say, oh, we've got a meeting with Georgina tomorrow. Let's get the IP portfolio sorted um, before we go into the meeting. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and some of the issues are really critical. So, so yeah. if your team are consultants and they've created technology, the consultant may own that technology, especially yeah. if you're dealing with software. Yeah. Um, so really having those contracts uh, between your employees and your consultants checked by, by a lawyer, I, I think is really critical to make sure Definitely. that the company you're building, you actually own the intellectual property within that company yeah yeah and, and education is another point on that that you wouldn't necessarily be be looking for I guess I don't know maybe I'm wrong about that but it's kind of educating employees when they come in the door to not bring somebody other, else's somebody IP. else's IP with them and then yeah. when they leave to not take your IP with them because most times when you get issues it's not because people are doing it willfully they just don't realize that they're sort of that they're doing it and so often often education can be quite a big help in making sure that that stuff doesn't happen yeah absolutely um what i would add to that um is ensure as part of your hr policy that you have incoming ip education so yep. you know bring what's in your head not not what you've got on paper yeah and outgoing um ip education as well so when yep. somebody leaves you make that statement of everything that you've created here you know stays here and everything in your head can can walk out of the door yeah and but just coming back to sort of the ip knowledge uh, and the portfolio you know that that kind of hits on trade secrets and 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 sometimes i find that trade secrets are the stepchild that doesn't get quite as much love (laughs) and but from an ip perspective and an ip portfolio they can be incredibly powerful as part of the strategy yeah and what i see a lot with startups is that they have this untapped trade secret portfolio 
Um, and I've seen a few cases where there's been a really well laid out policy for trade secret protection, but then no library of trade secrets, in which case, okay. you know, yeah. <laughs> you've got What's... the policy in place, but you're, you're not walking the talk. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and the other, the other side, you know, from a point of an acquirer, once you've acquired that business, not everybody wants to be part of a big corporate and if your yeah. most valuable trade secrets walk out of the door, they're not documented, there's no library, um, and your key engineer doesn't fancy being part of a big corporate, which which sometimes happens, yeah. all yeah. of that IP you've bought has, has just been lost. So, yeah. so that's part of the due diligence and the integration plan. Yeah, and it's risk again. It's that that I mean, ultimately, that's what all of this boils down to, is that, you know, I guess you personally who are doing the, the sort of due diligence process, there's a, there's a risk to you internally with your own organisation. You, you want to get this right. You know, you don't want to sort of get it wrong. But then also for the business as well, they're parting with essentially... Substantial amounts of money usually. Yeah, that's right. And so you want to make sure, or as, as far as you can anyway, that, um, that, that's, that you understand all of the risks involved before you do it. Yeah, and it's key that we identify those risks, right? Because mm. that defines whether something is a success or not. Yeah. Just because a risk is there doesn't mean we're not going to invest because, mm. you know, it might be a manageable risk, yeah. but we have to put some mitigation steps in place to, sure. to ensure that it's manageable. The key thing um, in an M&A due diligence is really identifying what those risks are yeah. putting mitigations um, in place, but also some of those risks, like not having any patents, for example, could be a yeah. tremendous opportunity. They yeah. could be sitting on a landmine of um, trade secrets that yeah. just need to be drafted and yeah. turned into a patent box. Yeah. So I think trying to understand the risk from an IP per perspective is really... Yeah. Um, and we talked... Sorry, we, go on. You can. We talked um, a little bit about this sort of uh, in our introduction chat. Um, just because there are no actions against a startup today doesn't mean that uh, that might not happen on day one of a large company investing in it. You know, it changes yeah. the risk profile by having a new owner. And you're talking um, there, and I think that is a brilliant point, which I hadn't thought of before because I've never been on your side <laughs> of the of the fence, I guess, but. And and just to clarify it, no, and you, you put it in your email really, really well. I think nobody really cares if a startup is infringing their IP, but if if Hitachi Energy starts to infringe their IP, then all of a sudden people care. Um, yeah. And so, as you acquire the IP, that is the difference overnight, as you say. That is the difference. So on one day, it's a small startup that hasn't got any money. So what's the point in in suing them for infringement? And then the net, very next day, it's Hitachi Energy, which is a completely different thing. So freedom to operate, and I think it's worth clarifying what that term is, because I think amongst us, we understand it very, very well. But I think it's not always that well understood by, by clients. But freedom to operate is a key part of, of what you're looking for, then. Would you say that? Absolutely. Or, or you know, having an understanding of what those freedom to operate risks are. Yeah. Um, having some uh, effort on identifying potential risks and, and working around those risks. Yeah. Again, it you know it's going to come in. Um, different jurisdictions will have different 
risk profiles on yeah. on FTO. Um, you know, the US is, is a tricky market in that regard, and you know, being aware of the risk of triple damages uh, yeah. for knowingly infringing somebody's uh, patent um, is a, a fairly scary prospect. Yes, um, of So, you know, that comes back down to IP knowledge and respect of IP. It's great if you can respect your own IP and have those contracts in place, but having a culture of respecting others' IP is yeah. also something that a bigger company would typically expect to see. And yeah. certainly in the companies that, that I experience with, you know, we don't knowingly infringe other people's IP. No, um, no. And that's, I think, so that's a good point, actually, to, to, to kind of just explain to the, any listeners who, who aren't aware, freedom to operate, what we mean in this about, when we talk about that is, it's your ability to commercially exploit your technology without infringing other people's intellectual property. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I with, with clients that I work with, and, and I'm interested to know what you think about about this, particularly the second half of it. But I I differentiate between freedom to operate, which is suitable to make a business decision. Um, so you can think maybe early in the development process, new technology, new new products. There's freedom to operate, which can be higher level. It can be sort of like because you don't yet know where the where the development is going to take you. you things are not kind of finalized. And so you're trying to make a decision. It should we go forward with this? And so there's different stages that you can get to where you can increase, begin to increase the amount of work you do on freedom to operate as you go through the development cycle. But often I don't include a report with those because it's kind of like my experience of FTO reports is that they're like that thick, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> nobody ever reads them. But then that's a, a large chunk of what the work is done by of work is done by the patent attorney. But then when we get to acquisition, so I'm interested. What are you What are you interested in seeing? Do you read those reports? Um, and yeah, how would you like it presented? So uh, in this in this environment of remote working, I've never had a sort of two inch thick report, which is what you were indicating. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, because this is a podcast, nobody saw how thick it was <laughs> saying it, but <laughs> yeah, but a large report. Um, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it comes it it comes to the respecting IP and respecting others' IP. If yeah. you've got a process in there that your R and D team are following, where you are doing your best to um, navigate a landscape. Yeah. I mean that 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 shows a level of awareness that mm-hmm. gives you uh, confidence in a particular product. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about a startup, but there is usually sort of from a corporate product maker, you are likely to have um, a gate system for your product de- development. Where exactly. You might yeah. have, you know, the first gate. You might have a proof of concept you know, look-see search to see what's available. And, you know, at the end of that process, you might have a a far more detailed search. But throughout that process, you may have identified uh, patents that are problematic and the teams Mm -hmm. had to go back and navigate around them. But I think think from a, um, you know, a respect your IP and cultural awareness within the company, you would want to see some elements of that before... you know, advising your company on whether yeah. to invest or not. I think part of the chat, I mean, startups 
in my experience anyway, don't generally tend to have like a formalized stage yeah. gate process through their R&D, but trying to bring elements of that that make sense and not. So part of the challenge that I face often isn't I would love to be able to implement sort of great IP processes within uh, the businesses that I work with. But actually, would you end up taking away one of their biggest um, assets, which is sort of the ability to sort of be freer, freer and create more creative? And so it's kind of like trying to get that that balance I, I guess but bringing in the elements that really are essential like yeah. okay you're not going to have a five stage process or whatever that's documented and written down but let's take an initial look then we'll come back to it in a year see how things have developed what's what's happened and maybe not a year whatever time frame makes sense I, um, I mean the number of times <clears throat> that I've invented things on the the journey to work on the on the train and then looked at the patent register and identified that somebody's invented it a year ago <laughs> um, I mean <laughs> you need to know a little bit yes um, absolutely so that you're not wasting your time right absolutely yeah um, and also it can be a resource to help you um not reinvent and get to the point get get increase your own knowledge you know looking at the patent database yeah and and I think that's that you've really got to understand who's in your team because yeah. I think there are inventors who look at the the patent landscape and it makes them less creative yeah. because they're like oh well I want to watch that space and I can't go there yeah. there are others who have a totally different ethos and they think oh well they've done it that way I'm going to change it and do it a slightly different way and yeah. you know get something even better so I, I think you know as in-house counsel, really understanding what the right IP education is for your yep. audience mm -hmm. is really key. Yep. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, I've worked with inventors who literally have no confidence and everything is completely obvious. Yep. And you've really yeah. had to <laughs> sort of <laughs> drill the IP education down to, have you solved a problem to yes, help the customer? That's, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Okay, let me then make the decision on whether or not that's obvious. Yeah, yeah just to, yeah, exactly. just tell me a low filter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, really, yeah, just just working out who the audience is and and sort of tuning it to them is key. Yeah. So if I so I think we've sort of worked through our our three now, and we can kind of summarise those. It didn't come out as a one, two, three conversation. It actually flowed a lot nicer, more nicely than that. But um, yeah. So so you, essentially, then just summarising that you. You're kind of when you're coming at it first of all you want to know do they understand what they have and that they have dotted i's and cross t's and that everything is in good shape and that they have a good understanding of ip generally and it's um, aligned with the business value and it's aligned with yeah really okay key. yeah of course yeah yeah you're quite right um and then from an operating standpoint we're looking at making sure that there's a respect for ip and that will run through contracts agreements every aspect really um you and you delve into each of those areas and you're looking to make sure because that i guess is part of the ownership part of yeah. due diligence as well isn't it? it's a big part of it absolutely you yeah. think you own the patent uh yeah. you think you own the source code but that's going to really depend on what contracts are, are in place with your employees yeah. and you know if you've worked with customers suppliers or rd providers you know what are the contracts in those relationships um, you know, have have you borrowed on your intellectual property? Uh, do you have any debts yeah. associated yeah, with it? You know, yeah. all these sorts of things. Mm. 
Uh, and then the third is around the sort of the more what I term kind of external risks, which are the risks associated with other people's um, IP and looking at that. Is it, I, I imagine it's it's a bit more of a comfort to you if you've got somebody there who's been managing freedom to operate all the way through the process and then has some way of communicating that to you in a, in a way that sort of says, look, you know, there's no certainties with freedom to operate. They can never can be. But. It's yeah. kind of like we've looked at this. We feel pretty confident. This is the landscape, and this is where we fit. Yeah, yeah. From yeah. from our perspective, the whole DD due diligence process is to understand um, the risks and help the business make a decision on whether to invest in a target or not. Yeah. And part of that is identifying all of those risks. They may be FTO. They may be IP ownership risks. But yeah. it's identifying what those risks are making the assessment as to whether that risk profile changes at the point that you invest. So the FTO risk would be something that would change the minute yes. you, you change ownership yep. um, and seeing what we can do about that, but also tying it to what what are the opportunities? Are yep. they sat on a, a gold mine of um, trade secrets? Mm -hmm. um, and, and can that be turned into something valuable for the business? Yeah, Perfect. That has been super, super useful. I always love these chats. Um, it's better than talking to people who are at my end of, of the process. It's it's much better to talk to the to the people because as you've as we've said throughout, you're the you're the guys that um whose opinion really matters when it comes to sort of um making these deals happen um or not. So thank you very, very much for coming on uh, the show. Really, really appreciate it. No problems at all. Thanks for having me. And we said you're on LinkedIn. I would recommend that people follow you. Yes, uh, definitely, because there's there's lots and lots of sort of uh, useful stuff uh, that you post um, on there. And so that, that should definitely do that. Um, and to the listeners, I would just say thank you once again uh, for listening and um, hope that you tune in next time.